This is Season 5, Episode 6, Regenerating Through Sobriety with Jen Clements. Jen, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Meg. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. It's um, been on my mind for about, I don't know, eight months. I wanted to bring someone onto the show to talk about this topic. And I was just waiting, waiting for the right person, the right um, moment. And I'm just so glad it's come together because when I saw the work that you're doing in the world, I was like, yes, we have to have this conversation. So do you want to share a little bit about your work and then we can dive a little bit deeper into um, all the things about sobriety, recovery and alcohol? Sure. Well, I'm so glad that it's a good fit, Meg. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. So I am the co-founder of Thrivalist, along with another life coach, Lucy Quick, who is an incredible human. And um, we basically help women to change their relationship with alcohol in an empowered and inspired way. Um, And that work has come about primarily because of both mine and Lucy's own journeys with alcohol and finding when we got to a point of wanting to change our relationship with alcohol that what was out there in terms of resources didn't align or fit with our kind of positions, I guess. Um, You know, a lot of the things that were available like rehab and AA and that sort of thing just seemed too extreme um, and just not aligned. So, both of us, I think, would identify as what we can call grey area drinkers. You know, we weren't sort of the extreme rock bottom um, stereotypical story of someone who has a drinking problem. Um, but that doesn't mean that we didn't want or need help, you know, with, our, with where we were at with our journeys. So I guess the way that the work came about was, I know from my point of view anyway, trying to help myself um, and that journey involved a huge amount of research um, and trial and error and getting to a point where I felt that I had really educated myself and gotten to a point where I felt free from alcohol um, and then thinking there must be other women out there who have similar struggles who need the kind of help that I have given myself and so to shortcut their journey and make it easier for them, kind of putting a course together to hold their hand and um, I guess, yeah, just make it a lot easier so that they didn't have to sort of struggle the way that that I did, I guess. And so that's how the first course came about. Um, I actually started a course called Quit While You're Ahead before Thrivalist and um, I was just sort of like testing my material on people to see like does this resonate because it had worked for me but is it going to work for other people and started getting some really amazing results and feedback through just doing the course for free and then I thought wow this is incredible I mean I was working as a lawyer at the time but just doing this on the side as a passion project and um, it was such beautiful work that I decided I actually want to focus on this as my career Um, and so I moved into studying life coaching to sort of I guess give myself a bit more support and confidence as a coach and then that's where I met Lucy and Lucy and I were just 
you know, we clicked from day one. Um, we were both sober pretty much the same amount of time. Our stories were similar. Um, we both had the same kind of purpose and passion and vision. And so we connected and Lucy brought a whole another element to the course and, you know, really improved it and upgraded it. And then we launched Thrivalist and that was about just over a year ago. And it's been an incredible, incredible journey. I think we've helped close to 300 women now. It's just, yeah, it's beautiful work. Mm, I love that story. And I love um, when you find those people um, that collaboration is the natural end result of those relationships. I just think that's so regenerative. So I love the love story between you and Lucy. It really makes my heart feel happy. Um, And I guess the, the brilliant thing about Lucy is that I'm glad this episode didn't come to fruition any earlier because as of today, I'm about two and a half weeks sober and I'm in that journey myself right now. And so this is perfect timing for me. And also, you know, I'm, um, I'm exploring this and I'm having lots of conversations with others about it. And it's really seems to be front of mind for a lot of folks right now. Um, wow. So I think it's great, great, great timing. But I want to start kind of at the beginning on the on this macro level and then go into a bit more about your personal journey. Can you tell us a little bit about from your research and your own journey why we have such a love affair with alcohol as a culture and why, like what are some of the things that come with that relationship in terms of our brain and our body? Like can we start there? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so I mean, alcohol is, the, the the short answer is that it's a really quick, effective, legal and socially acceptable way for us to feel good practically instantaneously. You know, it is a really, really powerful drug. And I know that a lot of people don't think of it in those terms. You know, when you think about alcohol, even just the phrase drugs and alcohol sort of separates it out um, and makes it sound like it's not as bad in air quotes as drugs, but actually alcohol is a really powerful drug. And so what happens when it comes into our body and it starts to affect our brain is that it triggers an unnaturally large flood of dopamine to be released. And it's released into the limbic system, which is the reward circuit of the brain. And so we get this really awesome buzz, like we feel good when we drink alcohol. And, you know, the brain is a homeostasis seeking organism and so is the body. So the body and the brain, they get this big flood of dopamine. It feels really good, but because our body and brain is seeking that balance, that homeostasis, it in response to that large dopamine hit releases cortisol, norepinephrine, other sort of stress hormones to bring the brain and body back into balance. And so what happens is you have the dopamine and the other feel-good chemicals, which don't stick around for too long, like, I mean, a glass of wine or a drink will probably give you about 20 minutes of a nice buzz. And then you'll start to get these stress hormones and you'll start to feel a little bit anxious. And the anxiety sort of hormones, the stress hormones last a lot longer than the alcohol. So what happens is, you know, you'll probably reach for a second drink around that time when the, the anxiety starts to be felt. But a lot of people don't realize this and they'll wake up the next day and after having a few drinks, feel a little bit anxious or a little bit on edge. And they don't actually um, connect the dots between 
the drinking and the anxiety. I mean, now there is this kind of buzzword anxiety because a lot of people know that this is true. Um, and so they'll go throughout their day the next day feeling a little bit on edge and then come five o'clock, what's going to, you know, make them feel better is a drink. And so there's this cycle that can develop, particularly with people that drink on a daily basis or close to a daily basis where they don't realize that they're actually drinking to relieve the anxiety caused by the previous drinking. And so it becomes this sort of vicious circle um, where people just think that they love drinking, but actually it's kind of a relief seeking thing that happens because of the previous drinking. And another thing in terms of why we have this love affair with alcohol is because I think as a culture, we're really not practiced at all when it comes to sitting with discomfort. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether that's emotional or physical, like think about you have a headache, you pop a, a painkiller, you know, you're depressed, you take an antidepressant. Like we're used to this instant gratification and not having to feel uncomfortable. So when it comes to something like a social situation, you arrive at, you know, an event and you're feeling a bit socially anxious, it's very instantly gratifying to have a drink to resolve that discomfort and quickly feel better. Um, and it's it's just a quick fix, essentially. And so it's very easy to lean on that instead of pausing and going, okay, let's take a compassionate curiosity sort of approach to this. What's going on with me? Why am I feeling uncomfortable? You know, is it my confidence is, am I intimidated? Like what is going on here and how can I um, in a really nourishing and nurturing way, help myself to feel more comfortable in the situation? We just boom, drink and feel better, you know? So there's this element of instant gratification. There's an element of, you know, really having resistance to discomfort. And then there's also the kind of chemical thing that goes on with drinking dopamine, you know, feeling good, then feeling anxious from the stress hormone. So there's a, there's a number of reasons why we have this love affair. And I think the final thing is that, you know, the fact that it's legal and that it's socially acceptable, it's like people don't even think that it's a drug, but it is a powerful drug and it's making us feel really good in the moment. And that's why, you know, we love it so much. That's so helpful to see that framing across those, I guess, multiple domains and, I was, um, in terms of that feedback of the anxiety and the irritation, I think for me the, the greatest feedback was in my relationship with my kids, you know, and, and how your fuse is shorter the next day, you're more irritable, and that trade-off for me just became not worth it, you know. Like I was, yeah, I was just really uncomfortable with being what I would consider like a really great parent most of the time and working really hard at that aspect of my life and then kind of sabotaging that because um, of that cycle that you described of wanting to, you know, rid myself of anxiety or reward myself after a stressful day. And and the turning point for me was really, um, and I think I've read this a lot, you know, when the hangover or the anxiety lasts for three or four days, it's just simply not <laughs> worth it anymore and um and then realizing I guess in the last couple of weeks um I've had lots you know I've been pregnant twice I've had months and months without alcohol but really this time been so conscious of that masking and so conscious of all those micro discomforts that alcohol can just take away and 
I, I kind of think that it's a beautiful invitation when we start these journeys to start deepening into those places where those cycles and patterns and beliefs and our esteem is present or our lack of self-esteem is present. And it's been so, I don't know, like liberating in a way to see those things for the first time and actually realise that that feedback is really life-giving and really important to acknowledge and that alcohol in kind of making our brain a little bit dumber or making us seem really stimulated by things that are actually not that stimulating or people that are actually not super aligned with us, we've been missing that invitation to make life even better, you know, and then could it possibly be even better than this? So I'm curious what your journey was um, and welcome to um, bring Lucy's in as well, but what was your journey and what, what, what was this grey area drinking that you started to notice the feedback? Yeah, sure. And you just said so many beautiful things there. So thank you for just, you know, so eloquently summarizing, I think, a lot of things that people will resonate with. Um, So, yeah, in terms of my own journey, my drinking, I think, was very stereotypical, you know, all the way up until I had kids. It was very much the same way that all my friends drank. You know, it was binge drinking on the weekend. It was social. It was you know, just what we do as a culture. I mean, I grew up in South Africa, but the the drinking culture is very similar to Australia, the UK, you know. Um, and so, you know, I would pretty much not drink during the week and then have a bender on the weekend where I would get, you know, as drunk as I wanted to. <laughs> and it was fun, you know. We had a great time and there was never any kind of issues in terms of, of not meeting responsibilities or anything like that. You know, I went to university and excelled in studying law and then, you know, went on to practice law and it was a work hard, play hard culture. Um, and it was just kind of all fun and games, you know. And then the turning point for me really was after I gave birth to my first son. So I went from being a social drinker and being a really happy, bubbly person to having a traumatic birth experience with my with my first child and overnight sort of just dealing with all these very heavy mental health issues. So I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, postnatal depression. I was incredibly anxious. Um, you know, I was having panic attacks and things. It just, like, my world changed overnight um, internally, you know. And so what had once been this kind of social thing that I would do on the weekend became this kind of nightly just need for escapism and relief. And, you know, when I say nightly, I was drinking one glass of wine a night initially, you know, it was just, I was breastfeeding and I was like, I just need something to take the edge off, you know? Um, And so that's how it started. It was just a glass of wine a night, but even at that stage, I worried about how much I looked forward to it and how much I desperately wanted to pour a second after the first was finished. But because I was so um, mindful of alcohol going into my breast milk, I, I was very strict about not, you know, having more than one. And then, you know, I had my second child and um, we had immigrated by that stage from South Africa to Australia. So I was now in a position where, you know, I'd 
moved countries. I had two kids. They were less than 15 months apart. So I had two babies, no family support, didn't know anyone in terms of friends or a network to support me in that way. And so, you know, it was just a very difficult time in my life. And when I stopped breastfeeding my second, the nightly drinking escalated from like one glass to two glasses. And then sometimes it was three glasses and I was still, you know, I was working um, as a lawyer and everything in my life was from the external perspective. Um, there was no indication that there was a drinking problem whatsoever. But for me, you know, I was averaging sort of three quarters of a bottle of wine a night. My three glasses was like three big glasses of wine <laughs> a night. Um, and that was during the week. And then on the weekend, it was like, oh, it's Friday. You know, I would easily polish off a bottle. And this was just, you know, happening night after night after night without a break. And then I was going, wow, this is a lot of alcohol and I'm not comfortable with this. Um there's alcoholism in my family. Like my grandfather died in his fifties from chronic alcoholism. And so I just sort of saw the red flags and I thought, okay, this is something I need to get on top of. And when I started to become concerned was when I really struggled to cut down. So, you know, I would try and say, okay, I'm just going to have one glass of wine. And I just, I would always kind of justify having a second or a third and like, then I would decide, okay, no, I'm just going to drink, you know, on the weekend. And so then I would try not to drink Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And on Tuesday, I would have a particularly bad day and I would somehow justify and rationalize my way to, you know, having a glass of wine on Tuesday. And then I was like, oh, damn, I broke my, my rule. And then, you know, like all these little things just started popping up as red flags. Like, why can't I only drink on the weekend? Why can't I only have one um you know, and then I would prove to myself in air quotes again that I didn't have a problem by taking a month off or whatever. But, you know, I would white knuckle through that month and I'd really want it and I'd really miss it. And it just showed me that my relationship with alcohol wasn't as healthy as I'd like it to be. Um, and so, you know, I was having all these mental health challenges, as I mentioned, um, and I was trying everything under the sun to kind of support myself through that. And heal from that, um, from, you know, kind of medication to meditation, yoga, you know, um, nutrition, seeing alternative healers, just doing all sorts of things to try and support myself. But like, I wasn't getting to where I'd like to, where I would want to have been with my mental health. Like I was still struggling a lot. And the one thing that I hadn't done was cut out alcohol completely. You know, I would, try and as I said you know take these breaks and cut down or whatever but I was there was this quiet but like wise voice that when I got really still would pop up and go you know maybe cutting out alcohol could actually help you know you haven't tried that yet maybe you should um and I was obviously trying to not listen to that because I was still very much reliant on that re relief and that escape that I would get through having a few glasses of wine at night um, but then eventually I thought, okay, I've got to do this. And through some synchronicities, I ended up seeing an acupuncturist. Um, also, you know, one of the things I was trying to help my mental health. And when I filled in the intake form, um, it asked like, you know, how much are you drinking? 
And I was honest about it. And normally I would lie on those things. I would just say like a glass of wine a night or whatever. But for this one, I actually put like three quarters of a bottle of wine a night on average. And so he spoke to me about it. And, um, you know, we discussed the fact that it was a concern for me. And he opened up and said that he had actually been in recovery for 25 plus years. um, And he recommended that I go to an AA meeting. And I was like, oh my God goodness like AA you know that is not what I see myself um sort of doing but at the same time I tried all these other things you know myself in terms of trying to cut down or take breaks and things and I thought you know what do I have to lose like why don't I just go he was encouraging me to just go and sit and listen you know so off I trotted to AA and even though my story felt like child's play in comparison to a lot of the other stories that I heard there I felt relieved. I felt really kind of just, you know, like, like a, like a relief and a peace washed over me when I got in there. And I stayed sober for six months initially. That was in early 2018. And I was, I was kind of very intrigued by AA. I mean, I didn't, I didn't identify as an alcoholic. So it was hard, you know, saying, hi, my name's Jen and I'm an alcoholic. Like it didn't, never felt right for me. But at the same time, I really appreciated feeling understood by the other people in the rooms who, you know, had these challenges with alcohol. And it felt like, I just felt there was something that was really, I don't know what the right word is, almost like it just, it pulled me in and it felt like where I needed to be at that stage. And so I learned a lot in those rooms, but there was also a lot that I didn't agree with in terms of, you know, alcohol being this chronic lifelong relapsing disease that's waiting for you in the parking lot, you know, almost like you're one drink away from devastation at any time. Like I didn't resonate with that because that wasn't my experience. Um, And you know, this whole thing about the, the first step in the 12-step program is that you're powerless of alcohol and that your life has become unmanageable. And, like, I didn't believe that to be true for myself. So I couldn't quite get on board with all the 12-step program and the AA kind of philosophy behind having a drinking problem. And I think, you know, having done a lot of research myself now, I realized that AA thinking is quite – well, this is – this is my opinion and my experience is that it's quite black and white. You know, you're either an alcoholic or a normie as they call them, a normal drinker. And they don't look at this spectrum along which many drinkers sit because alcoholic is actually a term that is quite colloquial. It's not a diagnosis. Like you don't, you're not diagnosed as an alcoholic. You have an alcohol use disorder, which is the clinical diagnosis. And it, uh, alcohol use disorder has subclassifications of mild, moderate, and severe. So it literally is a spectrum along which many drinkers sit. Um, and so in AA, they don't sort of take account for that gray area of drinker. They just think you're either like full-blown, severe alcohol dependence, one drink away from devastation, or you are a normal drinker. But actually, like, there's a lot of um, people that don't identify as that very severe alcohol use disorder, alcoholic, you know, um, wandering away from devastation person. So, you know, I just felt like the solution that AA was offering wasn't exactly what what I needed, um, being in the gray area. And so I went out and drank some more because I was like, 
I didn't feel that I needed full-blown abstinence necessarily, but also, you know, going back to drinking at that time, I realized that drinking wasn't the answer for me either. Like what I really needed to do was work on my healing journey. Um, and to do that, sobriety was a really beautiful opportunity um, in which to do that. You know, as you said, the sort of discomfort is an invitation to dig a little bit deeper and, and, and why am I feeling uncomfortable and what is it that I'm trying to run from? And, you know, for me, when I was drinking at night to avoid and escape the, the discomfort and the pain that I was feeling, it was delaying me dealing with the stuff that needed to be dealt with. And so when I removed the alcohol eventually on my own terms, um, you know, I then got very deep into therapy and, um, and trying to address the root causes beneath the need for relief, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, I've been sober now, it's two and a half years and it's been an incredible journey. I mean, hasn't always been easy, but it has been like the most, it's been the most explosive growth journey, you know, like in terms of personal development, um, spiritual growth, that kind of stuff. It's just, it's been a very incredible um, time of, of growth in my, in my personal life. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that. And I just feel <clears throat> as you talk, the reason I resonate with your approach so much, I think is that it's so neutral and so understanding and so compassionate about how we land in these places of having a, tr a troubling relationship with alcohol and um, that there's no shame because, A, as you said, the cultural context and that we and women in particular are heavily marketed to continuously mm. around this, then there's the web of connection that we exist within where we're tethered to a culture of alcohol in family systems in workplaces etc and then there's that push factor of our own internal trauma and challenges and going through life transitions and I think that you know this podcast is all about looking toward creating a more regenerative tomorrow right a, a more connected inclusive um slow spacious loving tomorrow and I think that for me this conversation is so exciting because I see the possibility that exists when we stop medicating ourselves to remain functional in dysfunctional systems and instead go on that journey of individual but also collective growth in order to see the possibility of like that where that actually actually it's okay not to be thriving in these workplaces or these careers yes. or in motherhood where we've got no village like it's it's really understandable that those root causes exist and when we're medicating ourselves to remain slightly functional we lose the opportunity to reimagine those systems and structures. And so I think I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm just really grateful for you sharing your journey without 
um, hiding the bits, you know, and just being really open about it. I think there's so much repair and recovery that comes from from that. So thank you. And I'm I'm curious, I guess you touched on it briefly, but what are some of the benefits that you noticed from that journey? So what are some of the things that two and a half years later, you said spiritual and personal growth, but practically what did that look like for you? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, uh, the relationship with my kids. I mean, I've got three kids and I'm so grateful to feel deeply connected to them and to feel confident in myself as their mum. Like I know now that I'm really showing up for them as the best version of myself that I possibly can show up for them as, you know, like I felt so much guilt when I was drinking and mothering at the same time. And as you said, you know, there's all that marketing to us and there's this whole mommy wine culture and all that kind of stuff. So I was very much under the impression that like drinking was a glamorous way to cope with motherhood. Um, But what it was doing to me, as you've experienced, is, you know, it was making, like I was drinking to take the edge off, but then the edges were sharper the next day, as Jill Stark says. Um, So I was more irritable. I was more, um, you know, less tolerant and patient and things like that. And so I would find myself sort of snapping or shouting or doing things which didn't align with my values in terms of how I wanted to parent. And so one practical benefit of not drinking for me has been being a lot more tolerant, patient, and compassionate with my kids, which is just such a gift. So that has been probably one of the biggest benefits. Um, The other thing is just unexpectedly finding my kind of passion and purpose in life through, um, you know, doing this kind of soul-led, soulful work with working with women to change their relationship with alcohol. Like I, I would never have expected this is where I would end up, you know, like if you'd asked me in my 20s what I think my purpose in life is, you know, alcohol wouldn't have come into it. And I think sometimes, you know, the the universe sort of has an incredible way of guiding us in the direction that we're supposed to be going in through um, overcoming challenges, you know, like you have to go through some some dark times sometimes to, to then acquire a burning passion to help other people in that space, you know? Um, and I don't think that I would have, I would have got that if I hadn't had the experience that I had um, with my struggle with my own drinking. And, you know, those I think would be like two of the major benefits and other things is just, you know, self-esteem, self-love, self-respect, those kind of things were always, slightly out of my reach and I don't know necessarily why I mean of course we can have lots of um you know kind of I can guess reasons and things like that but it's for me I think just showing up every day doing the things that I say I'm going to do acting in line with my values you know this is stuff that is quite accessible to us in sobriety um and it's been it's been a really beautiful journey, you know, like getting to know myself and getting to understand what my needs really are and then attending to those in ways that like are nourishing, you know. So when I need to relax now, a glass of wine is the furthest thing from my mind. I know that that's 
going to be counterproductive for me. So if I want to relax, it's like a hot bath, essential oils, a good book or a word puzzle, you know, and it's like, sounds possibly boring, but it's so nourishing. You know? <laughs> Actually <laughs> like satiates you. Like it feels, it hits yes. the sides. Yeah. I totally. totally and, and, and no price tag attached, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's only good. And then like, you know, in terms of kind of socializing and things like that, like I used to think going out and having a big booze, night with friends was a great way to connect with people but it's like that kind of social interaction doesn't leave you feeling nourished it's like the next day you are depleted you know because you've like put so much toxin into your body that yes you might have had a good laugh with your friends but you can have a good laugh with your friends going for a walk on the beach and then really feel nourished because there's no price tag so you know it's just added a, a level of quality to my life that wasn't there previously Mm, I love that I think that's so it's so when you when you think about it rationally and you're able to be in that place where like I so resonate with that intensity of like when is it going to be Friday so I can have Mm. you know and that white knuckling that you mentioned that really speaks volumes to me but when you look back and and objectively think about it and I had to hit a pretty like I had a really bad couple of days where my body was just like, it's been saying it for years, right? Like 18 years of abuse of alcohol. And, um, and that doesn't mean that I'm not functional or that anyone would know or, but it's abuse because the relationship has not felt good for a long time. Um, and I realized that the thing that I'm moving toward to take away the anxiety actually replicates the anxiety. So I realized at the same time that I was reaching toward coffee to alleviate anxiety, but that actually amplifies anxiety as well. <laughs> yeah. We move toward work to take away the anxiety of work. And that just, mir- so this culturally, mm. we've got this embedded attitude that in order to take away the pain, you move towards a thing that's going to actually replicate the pain. It makes no sense at all. But yet, it can be so difficult to, for me, get to that point where I was willing and it mirrored a bigger movement in my life, I think, where I was really moving to a place of having deep congruence with my values and embodying them irregardless of what my family thinks and what my other people in my life might think, like a deepening into this is the way I'm going to do it. And alcohol was actually like messing with that a little bit. So to me, the sobriety journey also mirrors this deeper journey, I think, to actually be able to stand by congruently the things that matter to us, the values, to express them in life without needing to make other people feel comfortable. And I think that's so um, one of the most exciting things through this journey is realizing that I wanted to belong to the community in like the sober community more than I wanted to belong to some of the old patterns and relationships and uh, experiences in my life. Like I wanted to belong to a different place and I was willing to make sacrifices to do that. And so I'm wondering for you and then for the folks you work with, what are some of the road bumps that they hit up against the challenges. It could be that relational piece or elsewhere. And then what are some of the things that can support the continuation of that sober journey in a really compassionate way? 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, road bumps, a lot of it is what you mentioned in terms of the social aspect. I mean, because alcohol is so integrally linked with, you know, socialising and it's so expected, it's really difficult when you choose to remove alcohol from your life to navigate those questions initially, you know, um, and expectations from other people. And I think a lot of us, especially as women, are, you know, we, we're sort of trained to be people pleasers. So it's when you choose to remove alcohol, it's uh, putting yourself first above what other people expect from you or might think is best for you. Mm -hmm. And that can be really difficult, you know, because we're not used to prioritizing ourselves like that, you know? Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the expectations of others is a big one and, and trying to feel comfortable when other people aren't necessarily comfortable with your decision not to drink and, you know, your decision not to drink has when somebody reacts badly to it, it actually says a lot more about that person's relationship with alcohol than it does about yours, ironically, um, because often, you know, it sort of holds a mirror up to the other person and they see you not drinking and then they think, oh, what does that mean about my drinking? And then they get uncomfortable and want you to drink so that they feel comfortable. So that whole thing, that strange dynamic is, is awkward. Um, and I think also in terms of challenges and roadblocks, it's really the the commitment and staying alcohol free. That's, that's the hard thing. I mean, like most people are really good at not drinking at stopping drinking, but they're not good at staying stopped because, you know, of the culture that we live in of that need for instant gratification, you know, like when alcohol is a mood altering substance and when we're not feeling good, it's really tempting to, use that quick fix of alcohol, you know? And so this whole conversation that we're having around doing that deeper work to figure out what is it that's making me uncomfortable and how can I address that um, is it's the harder road, you know? So it's this constant, um, I guess, decision to do the work rather than hit the escape button, you know? Um and so that's that's what people struggle with. And I think what really helps with those things is surrounding yourself with sober support and a sober community. Um, you know, like you mentioned, the sort of Instagram sober community, it's huge. There's a lot of people online because in real life a lot of us don't have sober friends or people in our lives that don't drink. We have to find that support and connection with like-minded people elsewhere. And thankfully there are so many amazing Facebook groups and Instagram communities and, you know, uh, organizations like Thrivalist that bring people together and, and help to sort of forge those connections. Um, and I think, you know, something else which is really important is like your mindset around sobriety because, if you think that, you know, you can't have fun unless you're drinking, then sobriety is going to be miserable. But if you change your mindset to like, you know, connection, like human connection is fun, whether you're drinking or not, like you don't need alcohol to have fun. And I think this is something that you touched on earlier. Like, you know, if a situation is boring, 
we would traditionally drink to make it fun, but if it's boring, it's boring. You know what I mean? And like, why are we like changing? Tolerating that. Well, yeah. Why are we tolerate? And if we're not enjoying being around people and then we drink to tolerate those people, it's like, what? That doesn't make sense. Actually, when we think about it, it's Mm -hmm. like rather choose to do things that really light you up and choose to be around people that you enjoy, you know? Um, And I guess that's another thing is filling your life up with things that light you up um, so that you don't feel like you're missing out. Because FOMO is a huge roadblock for people um, in sobriety. They think that all the fun is had with the alcohol and that if they're not drinking, nothing's fun. So, you know, it's really about figuring out like what is fun, playful um, and like what brings lightness to your life and, Mm. you know, really, really trying to explore those kind of pleasurable things that, aren't alcohol focused um and then finally I think education is a big one too because you know if you if you there's only so much willpower that a person can have and I think you really need to kind of understand what alcohol is what it's doing to you how to support yourself you need like a really holistic understanding of how to thrive in sobriety in order to make it enjoyable and to really reap all the benefits because you can easily sort of be what AA will call a dry drunk and white knuckle your way through sobriety, but that's not going to improve the quality of your life. And the whole point of removing alcohol from your life is to improve the quality of your life, right? Like we wouldn't do it unless it was for our benefit. Um, And, you know, those of us who've been sober for like, a long time like we wouldn't stick around in sobriety if it wasn't better mm-hmm. so it's really understanding like what this is doing for you um yeah sorry it's a bit of a waffly answer but no it's not at all it's beautiful <laughs> and I because what I'm hearing is you know that that these are the aspects of recovery that ensure that it's regenerative, sustainable and enjoyable, right? Like community and connection and purpose and using it as a mechanism to develop a deeper understanding of yourself and others and society. Like they're they're really, as you said, holistic. And for me, I've tried plenty of times to shame myself into changing Mm -hmm. in lots of different aspects in my life. And, you know, now what I teach and, and the communities that I hold space within, it's, it's just recognize unlearning that idea of recovery in anything, right? That it's we're going to get the best outcome if we just shame ourselves into change. It's just not possible or sustainable or, as you said, enjoyable. So I really loved your answer and I'm curious. I, I think that when you were speaking to beliefs, the biggest belief that I had was that I would be boring without alcohol Mm. and that life, well, I would say life would be boring. Other people that don't drink are boring, right? Which was my own projection of the flip side of that being like, I have a terrible fear of rejection, (laughs) which was the (laughs) truth of it, the truth of the matter. But it comes out in these judgment calls that we make around other people or their choices what are some of the beliefs or myths that you hear most in the women that you work with and what are you at, what is actually the truth when you begin to journey through sobriety? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the one that you brought up about being boring, I mean, you know, that's whole, just the word sober is like, you know, somber, gray, boring, you know, it's like <laughs> brings up all those connotations. So yes, that's a huge um, kind of misconception is that sober people are boring. Um, and I think, you know, like, like, like I touched on earlier, it's like alcohol is masking um, the reality of situations, you know? So it's not that, that people in sobriety are boring. It's like, we just not going to put up with boring stuff. You know, <laughs> It's like, because if a situation is boring, it's boring anyway. Um, people in sobriety, I find are actually really open and, um, experimental when it comes to fun and pleasure and things like that. So you'll often find like people in sobriety are taking up hobbies, like pole dancing or you know like a new kind of sport or whatever because they have the like energy and enthusiasm and they're often really playful fun people like remember these are the people that were generally the life of the party you know 100 yeah you know <laughs> um so it's yeah it's really is a misconception in terms of um other beliefs I think or limiting beliefs it's like that that you'll have no social life if you um if you don't drink. And that's also hugely, you know, untrue. Um, and there's some really beautiful organizations like Untoxicated in Australia where, you know, they get people who are sober or sober curious together and do lots of fun events and things like that. But also like we socialize sober all the time, even as drinkers, like think about how many of your social interactions don't involve alcohol. Like, you know, um, all the sober socializing that you do kind of going for walks, going, you know, to yoga, going to the movies, going for coffee, all those things. Like we think that we can't socialize sober, but we do a hell of a lot of it anyway, even as drinkers. Um, and as I was saying before, I think that socializing and sobriety just becomes a really nourishing and, um, it's, it's like a practice that leaves us feeling really full instead of depleted. And so it's just people who in sobriety do a lot more daytime stuff. And there are certainly people in sobriety who still go out for the big nights with their friends who are boozing. Like a lot of our students at Thrivalist do. It's not my cup of tea to be there until three in the morning while everyone's drunk. But for some people, they can totally do that and still be like the life of the party and on the dance floor. You know, if the music is good and the vibe is there, like you can, be having a lot of fun in your social life, you know? Um, and then the other thing that I think is a really limiting belief is that sobriety is only for alcoholics. Yeah. And, you know, this is what I touched on earlier as well about the black and white thinking. Um, and it's like, I would love for people to look at being alcohol free the same way that we look at, you know, not eating meat or not eating gluten or not eating sh refined sugar. It's like, it's a lifestyle choice that some people make because they feel that it's benefiting them. And it's not like anything to do with morals or being on a high horse or whatever, you know, it's a personal choice and, you know, it's, it's available to everyone, not just people who have hit some horrible rock bottom, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. It was, it was one that came up for me as well as you were talking was just that, if I 
if I quit alcohol, then it, I'm, it's people will look at that as if I had a problem and so I would rather yeah. keep drinking, which really doesn't make a lot of sense either. But it's like until I could reckon and be compassionate with that part of myself that did feel shame about, gosh, the things I did when I was drunk when I was younger, the relationship that I had with it when I was older, like, Uh, until I could reckon with that and have compassion for it. And I think for me that came through a lot of um, work and study around trauma Mm. and really understanding that for me alcohol kept me alive in a lot of ways and I totally. and I really honour that it's place in my life um, when I didn't have any other tools. Now I'm at a point where I have a lot of other tools and I have the capacity and desire to be creative about my life and I don't have to have it look like everyone else and that's okay. Like we're very threatened by difference, which is part of the problem with our culture. We're threatened by difference, by diversity of all kinds. And so for me, it's this amazing challenge of like, well, redefine community and redefine connection. And for me, like I would get more out of having a conversation with you on my podcast about this than going out drinking with my friends. I would get that deep nourishing, you know, soul heart connection that Mm. we crave so much that makes us feel seen and heard and validated. And so, yeah, I think it's this, um, it's a create like it can be a creative thing and in the creation of these different ways of communicating of connecting of being in community of filling our cups and thriving like to me that allows much more diversity to pour into all aspects of life which can only be a positive thing when we've come to understand or internalize that homogeneity and and being normal in air quotes is lovely so I think just like I said I wanted to be part of the sober community more than I wanted to be part of the alcohol community there's this other thing of I want to be part of the wayfinders, not the followers, you know, and I think that for me there's so many folks in the sober community that are teaching stuff and doing work that is really compelling and creative because of their sobriety, you know, and that's curious to me. So I guess in that realm for you, what do you, what is your big vision and, and what do you see the benefits like on a collective level of this shift we're making to redefine or um, cancel maybe even our relationship with alcohol? Oh, Meg, you just said so many beautiful things there. Wow. (laughs) Um, My big vision, I think, you know, as you've touched on right now, it's like a lot of people in the sober space or the sober curious space are really um, on a path of introspection, self-reflection, um, personal development, they're really owning this shit, if that makes sense. And yeah. they are really bringing like their full authentic selves to the world. And I just think it's, it's like when people, and, and it's, and it's not alcohol, like, please, I don't want anybody who's listening to think that alcohol is, um, you know, a negative thing, like you said, you know, it, it's got you and it got me through some very difficult times. And it's really not about the substance. It's about our relationship to it and how we use it because you can interchange alcohol with anything, you know, Mm. like whether that's some other drug or whether it's exercise or sex or gambling or whatever it is, like we all have something that we turn to 
to cope. Um, that isn't the healthiest coping mechanism for us. So it's really not about alcohol being the devil in any way, but it's about the people who have taken the like the, the personal stock and gone, okay, I don't like the way that I am relying on this external thing. Like, let me go inwards and see why am I doing these things? You know, that starts people on a path of really understanding themselves and accepting themselves and showing up incredibly authentically, um, which I think produces incredible work in the world. You know, as you said, it's like the wayfinders um, and the kind of work that people in sobriety are doing is just so inspiring. So, you know, I think if we all move towards kind of examining our relationship with anything that we feel isn't healthy in our lives, and I mean, that is a, something that shifts as well. Like, without alcohol in my life now, it's my relationship to work and busyness, you know, and I have to really... I have to catch myself to not dive into those things when I'm feeling uncomfortable and, you know, learning to sit with that discomfort is it's an ongoing practice, you know? Mm. Um, but I think if more people were on that path of being curious and exploring their relationship to distraction and external kind of escapism, it would have a really beautiful ripple effect on the world. Um, and in terms of, you know, sort of where I'd like to see this going, it's, as I said earlier, like the, the, the like a greater acceptance of not drinking as a lifestyle choice and also the destigmatizing of alcohol use disorder because, you know, it's just so common. It is so damn common. And there's so much shame around it, as you said. And that shame keeps people suffering in silence when it's actually so unnecessary. Like a lot of people have an alcohol use disorder at, at some time or other in their life. A lot of people dip in and out of alcohol use disorder, you know, depending on what's going on in their life. And it's just not this, it's not a moral blame shame thing it really isn't and I think the more people that speak up about it the faster we can change the narrative and the conversation around um, alcohol abuse because it's so common and you know I would just love it to not be something that people have to be ashamed about because you know like there's a statistic that it takes people between 10 and 20 years to reach out for help when it comes to alcohol wow. I mean that's that's a hell of a long time to be suffering, you know? Oh, it is. And, like, to me, I look at the way that we've organised life and work and relationship, and to me, alcohol is the most natural thing to reach for in that context. Like, it's like, 100%. well, of course, like we're living completely separated, isolated lives where work and material possessions is our main focus. So, of course, right, like to me it's, it's why, like why wouldn't I reach for alcohol in that context? Um, yeah. So I love that. And I, what I was hearing when you were speaking is how rich 
the process of this journey, whether you are someone who can moderate, I'm not, but whether you are that person, as you said, who can have a healthy relationship with alcohol on your terms, it offers just going through the process so much insight into um, how we can recover from other harms that we encounter from cultural, from our socialisation, like particularly as women, right, you've touched on it, being Mm -hmm. people pleasers and and the trauma from culture and I guess that's our work in the world is really about supporting folks to begin to take agency and make choices that are truly life-giving even when it's countercultural. And the sobriety movement to me is like the pinnacle of that. Like if you can... If you can hack that process, if you can find community to support you through that process, you the changes, the other changes that could be made in life and what permission that would give other folks around you, to me, is like really extraordinary because it is countercultural still and I imagine it won't be forever, but right now it is. Oh, it completely is. And, you know, we can hope that it's kind of... And over time it will be kind of... Um, less and less normalized, you know. Um, and But like I said, alcohol is not the devil. And I think that, you know, there is a place for alcohol completely in society. It's just the fact that it's so over-consumed and over-relied on now. Um, as you said, it's, it's, it makes sense in the culture that, that we're in that mm-hmm. it's the go-to. But um, over time, hopefully it will be seen more for what it is and used in a more mindful way, you know? Mm. Jen, I've loved this conversation. Thanks so much for coming and sharing. I'll link to all of your things in the show notes so folks know where to find you on Instagram. You guys do such great lives on your Instagram page and so offer so much support um, outside your courses for free, which I really appreciate. You do so much education work. So I'll link to all of that. But um, thank you again for sharing so openly and honestly and practically as well. Thank you, Meg. It's been an absolute honour chatting to you. Your insights have been really beautiful. So thank you for, for sharing that today.